0: Turn in your Bibles to Romans 2 and just uh, remain standing in honor of God's Word. This is a a longer passage and I'm going to break it down into three sections. So let me begin uh, just with verses 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Please pray with me. Father, thank you that you satisfy our hearts, our souls, our lives. And that it is only our folly that leads us elsewhere to look for life and purpose and meaning and salvation. Thank you that you came, that you sought us out, that you brought us to yourself, that you brought us into your banqueting house, that you have set your banner of love over your beloved. So please keep us from boasting. Please keep us from believing that it's somehow our our own cleverness, our own spiritual maturity or whatever we want to claim as our own that led us to find you and also keep us from believing that your grace toward us would ever give us cause for boasting, for lauding that over others and for feeling more important than the rest of the world. So we thank you for your grace, and we pray that you would lead us now as we hear your word and receive it in Jesus name. Amen there are uh, there's a flow of thought here in in chapter two of Romans that i want to that I want to pay attention to, and so we're as I said we're going to look at this in, in sort of three three units this morning, and this initial section is talking about how. Um, whether you've received God's special revelation, you know, whether you possess this book, or whether it's just your own sense of right versus wrong, your conscience that bears witness, uh, we all know what's right and wrong. And then Paul's going to go on and say, all right, so then you, therefore, who do have, uh, Paul's audience would have had the Old Testament, you know, a Jewish audience, for you who do have the scriptures and have the law, um, not only should you not be looking down on those who don't, but do you actually keep the law that you are so proud of possessing yourself? And, uh, and so Paul's trying to, he's trying to broach this whole topic of humility, and, and it's not a new subject. We were talking about that last week as well. And then he's going to conclude by just talking about how don't imagine that any of your religious stuff, any of the things that you do... And believe and that you've received, any of those things matter. The thing that matters is a humble heart. The thing that matters is somebody who's repenting and believing in Christ rather than any other uh, thing that uh, that we perform. So let me look again at these first several verses and, and how Paul is talking about the work of the law that is written on their hearts. Remember uh, if uh, if you were with us when we were in chapter 1, Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and in that congregation, there's the uh, the old guard who have a Jewish background, who've come to believe that Jesus is their Messiah, and, and now are Jewish Christians, and then there's those that come from a, uh, the, the Greco-Roman background, the pagan background, Gentile background, and they don't have a background in Moses, and they don't know the Old Testament, they don't know the law, what they know is what they understand to be the law of conscience. And, uh, and so Paul's bringing these two groups together under the same canopy uh, of Jesus. But he's, but he's really speaking right now to those who have a Jewish background and pre- pressing them not to feel high and mighty, not to feel higher than those who have the Gentile background. And he does that by this. He talks, first of all, in verse 12, that everybody's going to be judged according to the law. And if those who don't have the law, they're going to perish according to those that are without the law. And those who do have the law, because of their sin, they're going to be judged by the law. Um, There's not going to be any um, favoritism. There's not going to be any partiality. And that's what we were talking about last week. God's judgment is fair. And so those that have Moses and have the Ten Commandments and have the Old Testament, they're accountable to that revelation that they've received. Those who don't have that revelation, who don't have the law of Moses, um, and even today, those who don't have the the gospel, don't have the Bible, um, they are not going to be held accountable to the same standards that those of us with the Bible do have. But the the standard they're going to be held accountable to is their own understanding as as those who bear the image of God, there's a conscience, there's a right, there's a wrong. And as Paul even says here in verse 12, both categories of people Sin. He uses that word uh, in both in reference to both groups of people. So no one's going to be judged in ignorance. We would God would never do that. He's not unfair. That at the end of the day, after that day, uh, the final day of judgment, and you know, all of the books are open and all of everything is laid bare. The absolute anthem of heaven is just and true are your ways, king of ages. Nobody's going to go. Gee, God, I don't don't think that's fair. Um, Keep that in mind. Um, Because in verse 14, Paul says, when the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So um, Paul's just basically, I guess you could put it this way. They are without the law, the Torah, Moses, Ten Commandments, but they're not without a law. They have a law. And this moral category of the law is really kind of what Paul's referring to. They don't have the ceremonies, they don't have the civil laws, but they do have a deep understanding of what's right and what's wrong. How should you treat one another? Uh, And Jesus echoes this as well. When he's on the Sermon on the Mount, he's giving the Sermon on the Mount, and he's trying to expose people's uh, hypocrisy and kind of being satisfied by only this amount of obedience rather than going all the way. He says things like, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? You know, people say, I'm a loving person. God's not going to hold me accountable. I'm I'm, I'm a good person. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? People know that you're supposed to be loving, but God calls us to a deeper love, a sacrificial love, even love for our enemies. Um, And so that's that's kind of the difference in the, the revealed law and the general law. And in verse 13, there's something that Paul says that we have to pause and give a little bit of extra uh, attention to. He says that it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And we go, what? I thought that we believed that you're not justified by works. Um, I thought we can't be righteous before God by what we do. And... Paul seems to be saying something a little uh, hard to reconcile with that. But I think if you understand the context, it makes more sense. Jump down to verse 15 and let's get the context. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them um, when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So um, Paul's talking about how all sin, whether you've received the law or not received the law, that even those who haven't received the law have this law of conscience, the natural law, and that their, their conscience will accuse them. Sometimes it will excuse them. You know, our conscience may affirm that we haven't failed completely. You know, there's some things that we, we, we sometimes get right. But our conscience also confirms that we haven't obeyed completely. It confirms our guilt, and it confirms, like Paul said in verse 12, that we all do sin. So, uh, I liked how C.S. Lewis put it in Mere Christianity. Uh, If you haven't read that, it's fantastic. He's talking about this whole sense of guilt and conscience that I do not succeed in keeping the law of nature very well. And the moment anyone tells me that I am not keeping it, there starts up in my mind a string of excuses as long as your arm. And the question at the moment is not whether they are good excuses. The point is that they are one more proof of how deeply, whether we like it or not, we believe in the law of nature. So just the very fact that we we get defensive and we want to make excuses proves the fact that we have a deep sense of needing to be right according to what our conscience tells us. And Lewis goes on to say that if we do not believe in decent behavior, why should we be so anxious to make excuses for not having behaved decently? And this is universal. Everybody has this understanding. Everybody makes excuses. Everybody seeks to defend themselves. And it's not enough for us to say, um, if we get caught in a lie or somebody exposes our inconsistency when it comes to sin and obedience, it's not enough for us to say, well, um, okay, I'm sorry I lied, but, uh, uh, but at least I give money to the SPCA. Um, you know, it just, it, the law doesn't work that way. The law is the law, and so when you break a law, you're breaking the law. It comes as a unit, it's a whole, and, and as has been said, God doesn't agree on a curve. Um, what, he, what he does is he gives us a pass-fail. You're either 100% obedient to the law, or, you, or you, when you break a law, you've broken the whole law. Uh, James confirms this, uh, the rest of the, of the Bible confirms this, and so this, this is tricky because we can't make excuses. The c- Excuses don't work. It's a package deal, and, and that's why our sin gets us into such trouble um, that we need, to, we need to address. So in verse 16, Paul says that God judges the secrets of our hearts, and, uh, and this is why when um, we're asking the question, well, then can we be justified by doing the law? Is, is what Paul's saying there, again, in verse 13, the doers of the law will be justified, can that be true? Is that possible? And in a sense, yes, it's possible that if you obey the law completely, if you live your entire life without your conscience ever accusing you of disobedience, but more importantly, if you stand at the end of your life before God's judgment throne and he affirms, you know what, every day you did exactly what you were supposed to do, and every day you never turned to the left or to the right to do what you were not supposed to do. And if you can live that kind of life, you can be justified by your obedience. So then the next question would be, if somebody can be justified by obeying the law, will we be justified by obeying the law? Well, that, that raises the question, well, will anyone ever do that? And the answer is no. Nobody's ever going to be able to obey the law perfectly. And if you were to follow up with the question, well, has anybody ever done this? The answer would be no with an asterisk. And that asterisk is basically one person. One person, one human being who's ever lived who was unique in the fact that he wasn't just human, he was also, he was fully God and fully man. And Jesus Christ, from the the day he was born till the day he died, never once disobeyed a single commandment of the law. And always, in every day, loved the Lord as God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved his neighbor as himself. I mean, this is the guy who would go around and he would come into a town or a city and he would say things like, if any one of you can prove me guilty of sin, you know, bring it on. And he would minister to people, and he would tell them things, and he would do things for them, and and it would leave people scratching their heads going, we've never ever heard anybody talk like this man before. We've never seen these kinds of miracles. We've never seen a life that's this not only holy, but beautiful. I mean, that's what real holiness is. It's, It's not narrow, it's not legalistic, it's not frumpy, it's beautiful, it's faultless, it's pristine, and it makes you want to be around that person. That's why these crowds would flock around Jesus. They just felt loved. They felt like this is what humanity is supposed to be. This is what we were created to be, and I want to get in on that. And that was this life of Jesus, the only one who's ever completely obeyed the law. And all right so if if obedience is perfect obedience is possible and if Jesus did that then what did he earn? What was his reward for that? Heaven, right? I mean if you obey the law you're justified in God's sight, you're righteous, you get to go to heaven when you die. Well, all right, yes, Jesus is in heaven right now, but where did he go before that? Jesus went to a cross. The very last place you would expect somebody who was in complete conformity with God's expectations because the cross is a place of curse. It was a place where God's curse was poured out. And Jesus did that, as we understand in other places of the Bible, uh, as an expression of God's love for us. This is what love looks like, that Christ would lay down his life for us God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. These are the kinds of ways that the Bible describes what was so significant about that cross. It was a man who earned his ticket straight to heaven, taking this detour to Golgotha. And he did it for us, and he did it for everyone who would believe that through Jesus, I can have my sins forgiven, the sins that I know I've committed, whether I've memorized the all that's in the Bible, or whether I've never seen a Bible in my life. Jesus died for my sins. And if I believe in him and I trust in that, that's what gives me his record, his status, his approval, not based on what I do, but on what he did. That's that's the way that we enter into the benefits of what Christ accomplished for us. So Paul's talking to this group of, uh, of Christians, a mixed group, Jewish background, Roman background, and basically he's addressing the Romans, uh, I'm sorry, the Jewish background Christians, and he's saying, look, don't look down on those who didn't have the benefit of you and your Jewish background. They're brand new to the whole church and gospel dynamic. Help them along. Don't act superior to them. Because, in verse 17, and go ahead and look at this next section, he's going he's to start challenging them. And he says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who then teach others, do you not teach yourself? And while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. All right. Imagine yourself, grew up in a synagogue, always knew that you were part of God's chosen community, the the Jewish nation, and the last thing in the world you would ever imagine yourself being guilty of is blasphemy. Because that's what all those pagan nations are, are guilty of, not us. We know God's covenantal name. Yahweh, how in the world can we be guilty of blasphemy? And that's exactly what Paul's saying here. You're doing just exactly what the other nations are doing because of what he says, this inconsistency. Um, In verse 20 and 21 and so on, you get kind of this string of descriptors, and I want to ask you what you think they all have in common. Let me read them to you again. Um, You are an instructor of the foolish, teacher of children. You teach others you who preach against stealing, you who say that one must not commit adultery, uh, and you who boast in the law, what do all those things kind of have in common? Somebody who's doing this all day, right? Just nonstop, you know, words, words, words. And the problem here is that their, their talking doesn't, you know, isn't measuring up to their, their walking. Their walking isn't measuring up to their talking. They're inconsistent. And the fun- fundamentally, the judgment is that words about God without deeds that honor God, are blasphemous to God. And that's what Paul's exposing, their, their hypocrisy. Uh, and we, have, we should pause here, because I wanna get this uh, into more of a contemporary idiom for us, um, so that we're not just reading somebody else's mail. Uh, and, and let me ask you to just listen, and if any of these, uh, these are like, you know, we were buying Lydia cleats yesterday uh, for soccer season. If, if, if the cleat fits, you know, wear it, do business with the Lord. If it doesn't, you know, you can let it go. It's okay. But just sort of listen and try these on for size. <laughs> what, if, what if Paul was saying things like this? You who teach that God is sovereign, do you complain about how his plan is working out in your life? You who teach others to forgive, is it hard for you to forgive others? While you preach against greed, uh, are you generous? You who say that one must not judge, how critical of others are you? And you who abhor hypocrisy, Do you do everything with integrity yourself? That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to remind us, you know, left to myself, I don't measure up. The purpose of the law is to give us um, healthy humility. It's to to remind us that I, I need grace and I am in no better status than anybody else when it comes to relying on my obedience. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners, just like everybody else. And the only hope we have is in mercy. The only hope we have is, is in a Savior. So you could sort of paraphrase what Paul is saying. If you call yourself a Christian and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent and because you were instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you're a guide to the blind, do you practice what you preach? Does your life reflect your testimony? Is a good way to put that. And back to this whole language of blasphemy. Uh, Earlier, he says, "You know, you're you're dishonoring God, and His name is uh, is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you." Um, Basically, what Paul's telling his audience is that you know it's the Jewish community that's giving God a bad name, which is a complete surprise to them. They thought they had God's good name. They thought they had His favor. They thought they were, you know, in an elite status. And Paul's basically saying, you know what, you and all the other groups, uh, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Sanhedrin, all those, the people that Jesus was confronting, he's saying, you're, you're giving God a bad name. You're not blessing his name. And uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm sure that this is uh, something that isn't new to you, but some Christians we know are like that. <laughs> They're giving God a bad name rather than a good name, um, and the problem is not far from home. We are very, very capable of dishonoring God. We ourselves give God a bad name, and it happens anytime we start to boast in the things other than Christ that define us. And it can be lots of different things. It can be boasting in being right. You can boast in being obedient. We, we boast in being reformed. Uh, we boast in our church government. That's why we're called Presbyterians. You can boast in your mode of baptism, and that's why we've got our brothers and sisters who are Baptists. You can boast in being a good you know, church historian, and we have Lutherans. You can boast in being you know, really methodical in your discipleship, and that's why we have Methodists. Um, a lot of these names, by the way, became identified with these groups because they're what the people that were against them were teasing them with, those Methodists, those Lutherans, those Presbyterians. But any time those kind of labels become our identity rather than Christ, we're boasting in something besides him and that's what gives God a bad name. So we can boast in our theology, we can boast in being Presbyterian, we can boast in being victorious. You can boast in being prosperous. You can boast in being miraculous. You know, this applies to all, all types of Christians. And we all need to take our medicine. And to another group of Christians in Corinth, Paul said that God chose what is low and despised. Even the nothings, literally the word there is zeros, God chose the zeros, the people who just have absolutely nothing to boast about in order to to bring to nothing the things that are so that no one may boast in the presence of God. As it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So... The concern is, all right, um, if we're boasting in what we do and what we've received and all of our titles and all of our accomplishments, that gives God a bad name. I don't want to give God a bad name. You don't want to give God a bad name. How can we move forward not giving God a bad name? And go to the last section here. Verses 25 and following are talking about the heart, having a religion of the heart, a a genuine religion. Uh, Paul says that, For circumcision, and let me pause, circumcision is the removal of the foreskin. uh, That that skin is taken away, and that represents the sinful nature, uh, and it's removed. And what's left is devoted to God. And that was the sign that God gave to his Old Testament people, the Jewish people. So think of that as religion, external religion. For circumcision, religion, indeed, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision, your religion becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Read, Start in verse 28 again, and read along with me. And let me put it in our own Context. For no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly, nor is religion outward and physical, but a Christian is one inwardly, and religion is a matter of the heart, not by the spirit, not by the letter. Um, You know, back in verse 16, Paul was talking about the day of judgment. God's going to judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. He's going to judge the heart. God weighs the heart, is what the Proverbs say. He sees right into our hearts, and nothing can be hid from Him. This is what we have to reckon with. So trying to pretend and and, and do all the external stuff while we have an uncircumcised heart is a problem. And the only way to have a, a circumcised heart is to repent, to sort of cut off the things that you know are of the flesh or of the sinful nature, the things that you know are contrary to his will, and in sorrow turn from those things and believe in Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to give you a new heart in a sense, to circumcise your heart. This is what Paul's talking about, all this language of, uh, of the, that the Jewish community would understand, and, and, the, and he ends with this language of his praise is not from man, but from God. That if you are inwardly genuine in your belief and in your faith, if your heart is in this, rather than just kind of boasting in all the externals, if your heart is in this, there's going to be this dynamic between you and the Lord, where God's praise will rest on you, which is really weird for us to think about. We're so used to talking about praising God and praise being directed upward. Praise is going to be directed toward us. Let me let me just throw this out, uh, and then I want to close with one other thing. But to understand what does it mean for our praise is not from man but from God. Let me ask you, what is the highest form of praise that anybody can give? What's the highest form of praise that you can offer to somebody, to God even? It's not your words, and it's not your actions. It's your heart. And the highest form of praise that anybody can offer to anyone else is to love them. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the highest form of praise is to love somebody. And so, you know, um, to think about Jesus and Peter, when Peter had betrayed him and Jesus was resurrected and they're on the beach together and Jesus is restoring Peter, Jesus goes to that ultimate expression of praise by asking Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three times. And that's how Jesus is restoring Peter, to get his heart back into that place where, where he knows he's in right relationship with God, because he loves him. And then I like, um, uh, there's, there's, some, there's different ways of thinking, and I know it's, it's, a, it's conjecture, but it's helpful, I think, if it's done well, to think about what is that day of judgment going to look like, this day when God judges the secrets of our hearts? Uh, some imagine it to, it to look like you're standing before the pearly gates, and let's say it's St. Peter or whoever. And uh, some ask the question like this, you know, if you were to die today and stand before the Lord, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer that question? And that's a valid question. That gets to the heart of what we're really trusting in. But what if the question were something else? And I, and I have Brendan Manning to thank for this question. Um, Whenever, wherever he would go, he's with the Lord now, I think, um, but wherever he would go, he would ask uh, people that he was talking with, what if the last question that we hear from the Lord when we stand before him goes something like this? Did you really believe that I loved you? If love is the highest form of praise that you can offer anybody, do you and I really believe that God loves us? Do we really believe that we're the apple of his eye? And do we really believe that Jesus came and gave himself for us? This whole passage is talking about a matter of the heart, a humility of the heart that responds to the gospel and knows that I am needy. I don't have what it takes. There's nothing else I can boast in except what God's going to do for me, not what I do for him. And the best way that I know how to summarize this passage is a sort of a parable that uh, that I've come up with, and uh, it'll sound very familiar. I'm taking some liberties with the storyline, though, but just kind of bear with me and see if this doesn't help us understand these dynamics. Uh, There once were three sisters. Actually, there were two sisters and one stepsister. Um, A little different. The two sisters were proud and entitled, and their mother gave them the right clothes and taught them the right words and sent them to the right schools, and they ate the right food and socialized with the right people and went to the right parties. They looked down on their stepsister, who didn't wear the right clothes or do the right things. She was common and unrefined. Her hair was greasy, and her face was dirty, and she spent time with the servants and the animals instead of the aristocrats and society types. Not that the two sisters minded. They didn't want their stepsister around anyway. One day, a royal ball was announced, and the prince was looking for a bride, and every eligible young woman was invited. The two sisters were overcome by a haughty and hysterical sort of happiness. And they preened and primped and were certain that one of them would catch the eye of the prince. And they boasted in their beautiful shoes and fancy hair. And they thought that they knew all the rituals and ceremonies for such a formal affair. And they laughed at their stepsister when she asked if she could join them. And the fateful night finally came The two sisters were admiring their gorgeous gowns when their stepsister descended from her room in the attic wearing a humble, homespun dress. She was glad simply to be included, to just have an invitation to the royal ball. Her joy turned to shame when the sisters began to belittle her. The beautiful bullies even attacked their stepsister, ripping her dress and, in the process, shredding her hope. And satisfied with their superiority, they left with a flourish. In brokenness and sorrow, the stepsister fell to her knees. She felt alone, without hope. But then she became aware of a presence. A presence, and she wondered if it had just appeared or if it had been there all along. And she looked up, but her eyes were overwhelmed by a light that surrounded her. It felt warm and clean. She didn't remember standing up, but she was far more amazed to see that her ruined dress had been transformed into a royal gown covered in gems and that her formerly stained slippers were now made of gold as clear as glass. The presence led her outside where her royal escort was waiting in a king's carriage. By this time, the two sisters had arrived at the castle Eager to make their appearance, they did not wait for their escorts, but rushed past the guards and into the grand atrium. They were surprised by the stern voice behind them, commanding them to halt. And even more startling was the realization that they had left their invitations at home and could not prove their identity. Can you imagine their despair as they were marched outside just as quickly as they had hurried in? Standing outside the castle gate in the dark together, the two sisters looked up just in time to see their stepsister arrive. Her transformation made her almost unrecognizable, but the two sisters knew it was her. They were speechless as their stepsister was escorted from the king's carriage through the gate and into the atrium. At first, she didn't dare to look up, but as the stepsister caught glances of the people's expressions, they were all nodding and smiling at her. Her sense of inferiority slipped away along with her fear of condemnation. She started to smile back. She started to lift her head. Her mind was thinking about how she didn't deserve to be there, but in her heart, she felt welcomed. And as her escort led her toward the ballroom, She wondered who and where the prince was. As soon as they walked in, the ballroom erupted in fanfare. A servant stepped forward to take her escort's hat and overcoat. A very important-looking official appeared and placed a crown on his head. And then she knew. He turned to face her, extended his hand, and asked her to dance. He was the glorious prince who had brought her to his ball himself. She was just a humble stepsister, overwhelmed by the gracious love of her prince. Let's pray. Lord, if there's one thing that we need, it's your mercy and your love. It's your grace to us, your pursuit of us your affection and kindness toward us. And sadly, that's the one thing that we are so easy to forget. Would you uh, forgive us for the ways that we boast in our accomplishments, that we boast in the things that we do and we forget to show mercy that's been shown to us. Lord, would you give us grace to stay, uh, stay humble before you, to stay glad for what you've blessed us with, to extend the same mercy that we've received from you to others, to to avoid boasting and complaining, and to live lives that bring glory to your name rather than dishonor. Lord, we pray that you would do this for us as individuals uh, and as a congregation. Lord, that more and more we would be amazed and shocked and overwhelmed that you're pursuit of us and the way that you gave your life for your bride.